1: your perfect home sweet home hi everyone Sophia Bush here welcome to work in progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going oh Guys, I am so excited for you to hear my conversation with today's guest. While I wish I could have met Tara Schuster in person, it obviously felt appropriate and timely to do our interview remotely. Uh, We got together on Zoom and had such a ball. Tara is an executive at Comedy Central who wrote an incredible book called Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies and Other Rituals to Fix Your Life from someone who's been there. For those of us who do have some extra time to think and reflect, this period can be challenging and the things that Tara talks about in her book are incredibly helpful ways to cope, like journaling and figuring out what principles you live by. So if you're feeling stuck or anxious, or honestly, even if you're not, I think that this conversation will be incredibly relatable and comforting. And I hope that it brings you some joy while we're all physically distancing. Enjoy.
0: I've been saying to people, um, we're also in a pandemic. So it's good to remember that it's okay if uh, things feel more overwhelming than they actually are, because they are more overwhelming than they actually are. We kind of have yeah. to remember that and be really gentle with ourselves.
1: Yeah. It's pretty wild. Like yesterday, I've been needing to just sort of reorganize at my house for a while. And I yeah. started and I theoretically got a lot done, but it still looks like a bomb went off. In it. <laughs> yeah. And at five o'clock, I just went, wow, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And I actually took a moment and I went, I don't have to do this. Tomorrow. Yes, exactly. I can do this tomorrow. Yes, and, this... and I went and I sat on the couch and I turned on old episodes of Grey's Anatomy of all things. Yeah, and I just was like, "This is my pandemic steez. This is what I'm." Yeah, doing.
0: that's okay. I love that. That's my plan for this afternoon. Is I could be working on my book proposal for book two, which I I will. But I decided after we do this podcast, I have the day off. And I'm gonna watch on the waterfront, which I've never watched and have wanted to. Like, I'm gonna make some popcorn. I'm gonna get by the fireplace. Like, I am curling up into this for the rest of the day. But
1: I love that. We have to take care of ourselves. And I keep trying to remind myself of that. And I had this sort of aha moment, I think, over the weekend where I realized that so many of the things that are making me stressed out in my physical space Mm. aren't done aren't taken care of because I've been so accustomed to overworking. Right. You know, my very first job, my very first show, we would shoot 18 hours a day, our whole first season. Everything was so crazy. And so I'm just used to that. Right. And so I work and I schedule and I don't make time to meditate. And, and I, you know, I remember you saying like you didn't know how to change the bag in a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. And I was dying laughing because I was like, honestly, same. Like before I had a Dyson, I didn't know what I was doing. That's and, by
0: the way, in the book I don't say I don't say Dyson, but my this the little footing is like I bought a vacuum cleaner without a uh, bag. Yeah. That's what I got. Like I was
1: like <laughs> I can't do this. I can't do it either. I just can't cope. <laughs> and and you do you realize? I I just I felt so much for you, and I also felt so seen by what you wrote because you. To your point in your book, you were this high-performing person at work, but in your life, you were like, wait, I, I missed I missed something. I, I have a friend who used to tell me, he was like, it's like you skipped to expert, but you missed all of beta. Like you just missed yeah. this whole thing. And it's interesting to, to start, I think, to come to terms with needing to go back Yes, and reassess some of the steps you took to get where you are.
0: The basics. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't know about your um, background, like childhood, but for me, I definitely thought I had to achieve all of the things immediately or there would be no time,
1: mm-hmm. you know, and
0: I think, so I rushed through how do you set up a life, but also when you have no examples, and it's something I'm always coming to terms with is even in mm-hmm. relationships now, it's like, wait, I've never seen a healthy relationship. Maybe that's part of why. I keep falling into familiar things that aren't great, <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> yep, I sure do. Wow.
0: <laughs>
1: Lots to talk oh about. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm just, I'm so excited that you're here. I mean, we just hit the ground running and there there is to the point of what we've discussed so far, so much in the book, that's so relevant to talk about. And I think will be so illuminating for everyone, especially because we are in this time where so many of us are at home and being forced to, sit with ourselves in right. ways that we haven't in the past. Um, and I think that can be overwhelming, but I also think to, to the point of the beginning of this conversation, we need to be a little more gentle with ourselves.
0: Yeah. I, I think. Give
1: ourselves some permission.
0: The key for me. So self-care is always an important part, I think of, of, of anybody's journey, but I think in a, in a crisis it's sort of mandatory mm. But I, Mm. because, you know, I I write about, you know, on the airplane safety videos where the oxygen mask descends from the sky and the mom uncharacteristically calmly puts it on her first, you have to be able to help yourself before you can help anyone else. So Mm -hmm. in a crisis like a pandemic, I feel like this is the time for self-care, but the step people are missing is it's okay to fall apart. It's okay to, you know, to have moments of, I just can't do anything. I just can't take a shower. I feel the cultural anxiety because it would be pretty weird if you didn't. Like if you just like immediately went to, I'm learning how to bake bread, that is odd. We have to acknowledge, you know, like we have to acknowledge this is something beyond our control. This is something where so many people are suffering, where we too might suffer could suffer our families could suffer and honor that 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 is a real fear and that our fear is intelligent and that that fear is what's keeping us six feet away from people keeping us in our houses so it's it's okay to to feel those those anxieties those fears those worries but then we need to rise from the ashes and and one of the things i've been saying is we need to go mary poppins on our lives you know, mm. we need to descend from the heavens with a little bit of discipline and cheer and get things organized. You know, even our houses, um, making sure everything's not falling apart. Or at least if you have kids and it's impossible, do you have like mom's shelf, shelf of organization? <laughs> like do you have one place that is just your own. Um, mm. So I, I think it's about tending to our physical space and then our emotional um kind of emotional journey that we're in and so i'm really recommending that people journal. I mean journaling mm. there's so much science behind journaling about
1: <sighs> I have yeah. so many questions for you about it. So many. Oh my god, <laughs> I'm so glad you brought it up. But before before yes. we get into what we need to be doing today, i i actually i want to go back because the book, you know, when when i'm when i'm referencing your writing and the stories that you tell about in a way you know, going back and reprogramming the beta bits. Yeah. I love that you talk about it because I like to go back with people at the start, you know, and find out what you were like as a kid, you know, who was Tara at 10? Were you this very productive, overachieving, you know, uh, looks put together on the outside kind of kid or or were other things happening then?
0: Yeah, I was a combination of trusting, you know, I I just wanted anybody to hug me. I would abandon my parents' table at dinner and just go look for adults to go talk to and mm. ask them pretty inappropriate questions too that you know, like I'd ask them about their sex life and things that I had been seeing on Showtime because there was no adult supervision whatsoever at home and i basically watched anything i wanted so i had all these adult thoughts about how the world worked and so i just wanted to be around adults so i was really tenacious and jumping at the idea that i could talk to other adults when i was in public and then at home you know even with my babysitter i was constantly telling them like i love you don't leave me like I was really looking for love, but I always achieved at school. I was never a slacker. School was the only place where there were adults paying any attention to me. So Mm. I think I formed real bonds with my teachers. And my whole self-worth became tied up in how well am I doing at school because that was the only place I was getting any positive feedback. So... Mm me as a little kid, I was, I think my most natural state is just trusting and jumpy and glittery. And I mean, jumpy in a good way, like a lot of energy and just wants to go do and explore. But I think because of the circumstances that I was kind of in, I I tended to, to get into a little bit of trouble too, you know, to kind of embellish the truth. And like, I would i would lie about things and brag about things that w- just were not true all in an attempt to get positive reinforcement so it was just looking for please hug me like you mm. could you could sum up my childhood with the sentence please hug me that was mm. was what i was trying to get
1: i also wonder if if sometimes that that tendency that kids have to embellish yeah. and especially when you are looking for safety and you don't feel it as a child i i wonder sometimes if that comes from your brain connecting dots to fantasy and hero stories the thing that little kids are raised on you know where yeah. where whether it's a, a fairy tale like Sleeping Beauty or, you know, a, a Pixar movie like Brave, it's like we were raised to think that if we are tenacious enough or or brave enough or special enough that, that we'll slay the dragon and that the prince will come to save us and that we'll rescue the kingdom. And, right. and I really wonder what kind of effects those things have on kids because when I think about it through that lens, through through the stories that we get raised on, it's no wonder to me that, that we want to take a place in those books, that we want to be special enough.
0: Right. Right. And special enough is such a good phrase here because I think my parents, the only real values they modeled were make a lot of money. So when I look back and, and I was like concocting tales of how like, I am a rich princess, like My real parents, like, I was doing all of those, like, weird stories, like, these aren't my real parents, or my dad's a big CEO, like, I was making up Mm. a lot of of this because my parents, the stories they told of what is success, what is a good life, is, it was just stuff. It was just the Mm. accumulation of wealth and status. And so even though I didn't really know what the word status meant, I projected thinking, oh, other people will love me if they think that's who I am because I see from my parents that that's all that really matters. And in fact, it is repelling. <laughs> it is absolutely repelling to, to everybody when somebody brags or embellishes in that way. And I've really had to come to terms with not feeling embarrassed of myself as a little kid and having some mm-hmm. self-compassion and just you know, saying to myself. That little girl was really hurting and did not know any better. It's not embarrassing. It's, it is, it is what it is. And, you know, not adding shame and blame to the story. Um, Because for a long time, I was really embarrassed of how trusting and needy and braggy I was as a little kid. But that little kid was just hurting and looking for any kind of validation. Mm.
1: What what was the dynamic in your family if if you're comfortable talking about it like what what were your parents like and and looking back on it how, how do you think you connect all those dots now
0: Yeah I I think they really didn't know themselves and were kind of out of control like they didn't really have they didn't have values or principles or they never grew up. They were something, you know, and in the book, I really try never to tell their stories because I don't, you know, they're very secretive. I don't know what happened exactly. But what I saw was they didn't value themselves. They didn't take the time to do a real accounting of, of what they needed. So it was chaos. It was Chaos inside and then the trappings of success on the outside. That was sort of what they modeled. Um, my, My mom was a doctor. My dad was a lawyer. Stuff, vacations, and nice cars were all that mattered. But the financial stress that that put them under emotionally wreaked havoc on their lives. You know, they'd want something and then they'd be stretching to get it. So then they'd get depressed, anxious, upset about it. It was like this never-ending cycle of stuff will make me happy, but the path to being happy makes me so anxious, fearful, depressed. So I think in the most generous way I can say, they were messes. They, they just didn't know themselves
1: at all. Mm. And what do you think that being in that energy, because... You know they they say hindsight's twenty twenty. It's it's I imagine easy to understand as an adult who's done the work. Yeah. When you look back and you can be gracious in that way, but as a kid you don't understand those things specifically. That that kind of energy to grow up in a household like that. What did that propel you into? Were were you? writing as a child were you super active like h- how do you think you coped I
0: poured myself into school I just thought school is the only thing that's possibly going to get me out of here I could spend less time at home if I'm at school so i you know I'm having lunch with my teachers I'm joining every single extracurricular activity I did lots of theater you know we're so I could literally be somebody else and literally like get applause from, mm. from anybody, get somebody to, to give me a hug and say congratulations. So school was my escape. But at the same time, by high school, I was using weed as a way to really numb out and obliterate mm. my memories and just get as far away from my emotions as possible. My early childhood to 25 was all about survive, get out of here, get go to a quote-unquote fancy college that will deem you worthy. You know, like I was looking for something external to say, you're a good human. Like, because you went here, you're of value. And mm-hmm. then obliterating my emotions with mostly with weed, sometimes with alcohol, but just getting as far away from myself as I possibly could.
1: Mm. And do you think, you know, when you talk about college, do you think that that environment, because there is such a, we have such a culturing here in America that, you know, college is for partying and, you know, the kids get to go rage. Do, do you think that that kind of college culture made it easy for you to hide just how much numbing you were doing?
0: I mean, I didn't hide it. <laughs> I I did not hide it. Um, but I, I guess the persona I always had, though, was stoner girl who is somehow able to get the best grades. Who some work hard, play hard. Work hard, play hard, totally. Um, good at work, bad at life. That was always my my way. And especially for me, what I thought college was going to be was my savior, that this was going to save my life. And the professors were going to understand me and understand what I had been through and teach me some new way to be. But I wasn't ready at all to even be myself. You know, my, my college friends barely knew about my childhood. They, mm-hmm. I never talked about my mom. I barely talked about any of the dysfunction because I was so embarrassed by it all. So it's funny now that the, the book is out, a lot of them have said, wait, that's why you never talked about your mom? Like, wait, that, you know, they'll, they'll find a story and they're like, wow, that makes a lot more sense now because I was doing so much hiding of, of who I was, except for the partying. I could be relied on <laughs> to, to be fun and, again, if you're getting all of your validation from external sources, you want to be the life of the party, always down to do something, throwing an epic rager in your dorm room. That was definitely me. But it, it was because I wanted people to hug me. And, you know, I've, it's, it's taken a lot to be able to say that you know without feeling embarrassed of myself just how much i was looking for external validation
1: i feel like that's such a beautiful signifier though of when you've done the work in an authentic way i i have my own versions of that where i can look at something and say oh that's how i was coping or oh that's right. what i was trying to solve for or of course i put this situation ahead of myself which was toxic because I've been trained to do that, to be a good girl by a society that wants us to, you know, sit there and be smart but not too smart and be pretty but not too attractive, because then you're a distraction or a whore or whatever. Right. You know, and the list goes on and on. And and I don't feel embarrassed by by any of those realizations. I'm I actually I feel so much more gentle than I used to. I think when I was unwilling to look at my experiences, good and bad, my successes and failures through the lens of both my experience and larger cultural conditioning. When I, when I couldn't do that, I was so much quicker to anger.
0: Yeah. I, to- I, I love that you've brought that up, that the only way to be gentle with ourselves is to admit who we are and, mm-hmm. and what we've been through in a non-judgmental way and it softens you. every mm-hmm. time every time you're able to admit and see without judgment who you are, who you were, you soften and you gain empathy for other people mm-hmm. and I find myself less angry with other people, the more I'm accepting of myself. Mm-hmm. The more I, I meet my edges and say, that's okay. That, that is me, that's okay, I'm not damned and unworthy because I behave that way, I just am me and I'm trying to do my best, the more I give that leeway to other people and I find myself giving other people the benefit of the doubt more and more, you know, with boundaries, of course, you know, trying to build healthier and healthier relationships, but with a gentleness towards myself and towards others.
1: Yeah. Mm. <laughs> mm. all the yes so college is happening cause cause we're talking about where we, where we find ourselves now in these more tender places and I love it but you discuss school you know you're the life of the party everything looks like it's great and I know that things changed for you at twenty five. Right. Where, where between college and and that sort of moment at twenty five, did the internship at the Daily Show with Jon Stewart come in? How, how did that fit into this?
0: It was right around twenty five because okay. I graduated in the height of the two thousand and eight recession. Welcome to new recession. But uh, so I couldn't get a job. There were, there were no jobs for me. And I was living with my live-in boyfriend in New York who basically he said, you know, do you want to move in with me in my apartment in New York? And I had no other place to go. So yes, of course. What I didn't realize was that I was moving in with him and his parents, which was a very different, <laughs> It's was a very different question. Would you like to move in with me versus would you like to move in with me and my parents? Um, (laughs) That's
1: a huge detail to just leave out.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was. And so now I find myself in New York. I don't really have any money. I have a lot of student debt. I'm in a very unhealthy relationship living with my boyfriend and his parents. And I was a complete mess. I was um, interning at different theaters around New York City because I'd gone to school for playwriting. I had always kept up theater And it just wasn't working. Also being in that scene, I was just drinking so much. And a friend said, you know, maybe you should try The Daily Show. I just interned there. And I was like, oh, my God, I love The Daily Show and I love TV. That would be amazing. And by some Mm -hmm. miracle, I got that internship. But again, all of the disorder and chaos in my internal life, I never showed that one lick at The Daily Show. You know, I, I was dedicated to being the best at the worst of tasks. Like, you show me something horrible, I got it. Like, whatever is the least glamorous job here, I'm on it. Because I um I write about in the book when we had our internship lunch. You know, time to talk with John Stewart, um, who I do not know by his first name John. That would be that would be crazy. Um, but when when John talked to us. One of the interns asked, "How do you get your first big break?" And John very quickly said, "There are no big breaks. There are just a series of tiny little breaks. And the trick is, you have to work your hardest and your best at each one of those." Mm. And to hear that from somebody I admired so much, somebody who was so rigorous in his work and and really kind, he was he was the kind of guy who would smile at anybody in the hallway ask how you were doing. He's just as good. I'm so happy to report. He is exactly who you want him to be. Just as good as you want him to be. But hearing that from him, I realized, oh, I don't need to be the funniest intern. I don't need to be dazzling them and writing them pitches. I need to find my big little break. And I found it in the coffee machine at The Daily Show where, so after rehearsal, John would always make himself a, again, don't know him by John, but let's just go with John, would make himself um, a cup of iced coffee. But I noticed that the coffee machine was often out of water, ominous red lights, you know, just dirty, not working. And I realized, oh my God, this is it. This is, this is what I was put here to do. I've got this. So You know, I read online how to fix it. Every day I would check, you know, before John has made his coffee, after he's made his coffee, how is this thing functioning? I made that coffee machine my bitch. I was just going to do it. And that decision, the producers noticed that, and they hooked me up with my first job at Comedy Central. So my whole career sprung from that decision to be the best at the worst. But I, I think what's interesting is my little survivor engine that makes me look for external validation and how can I be helpful? How can I be indispensable? Mm. It does drive me and ends up with success. But now that I've I've got a little bit more space from my childhood and have done a lot of the work, I've realized oh, but my interior life matters too. <laughs> like, like this is extremely important. And, you know, mm. it doesn't need to be about the external validation anymore because that's so fleeting. It never lasts. It's just not a good place to hit your wagon. Other people's perceptions of you, you cannot control at all. All you can control is your own perception. So it, it's interesting that my this little driver in me gets me far. But I have to remember, wait, am I taking care of myself? Am I burning myself out? Am I being gentle with myself? Am I pushing Mm. too hard? So yeah, that was my 25 moment, my hitting rock bottom happened pretty close to that internship.
1: Mm. When you talk about getting this job at Comedy Central... Can you explain to people what you were doing there? Because I'm I'm curious, again, what that looks like. Because to your point, at that time in your life from the outside, everything looks great. Yeah. So what does it mean to get a job there? What are you doing there? What has your life become?
0: Yeah. So my first job was completely entry-level PA at Comedy Central. But I had no entertainment contacts. Even though I'm from Los Angeles, I didn't know anybody in the quote-unquote business. So it was a big deal for me to get my foot in the door somewhere, especially because I didn't have any of the right... I mean, The Daily Show was a really good internship. But other than that, I didn't have any of the right internships. So I always try to highlight that to people that it's okay if you didn't have the quote-unquote right internships, know the right people. I didn't have any of that. Um mm. so that job was basically, you know when you play a video online, like a YouTube clip or just a video off a website, somebody had to build that video record, and that somebody was me. And I was, <laughs> and I, I built all of the video records of their standup collection, and they had been doing years and years of stand-up, and whereas somebody else might have looked at this as, Possibly the most menial, I mean, drudgery data entry job in the world. I looked at it as my opportunity to go to grad school in comedy because mm. I watched literally everything. Every piece of stand up they had for years and years and years, I had to watch, put tags on it, log, and put in the system. And it was miserable.
1: <laughs> I will say that the menial work was miserable. Oh my god! I was just about to be like, God! I want to do that job. I want to go to grad school for comedy. No, no. you you can do it in other okay. ways. No, the time <laughs> has passed. Just watch okay.
0: comedy specials. You don't need to log the videos to to no, get no, that no, grad no. school experience. Okay. Uh, it was pretty bad, but I learned again. You know, people I, on the team ended up really liking me because I was confident and reliable which I didn't realize were in such short demand in Hollywood. I didn't realize that those two things, like showing up and doing what you say you'll do, are hugely important. So that was sort of the very beginning. But again, I was trying to be the best at the worst, really trying to maximize this weird opportunity. And so I started getting more and more leeway to try new projects. And eventually I pitched myself to be the digital producer of Keen Peel, which was a brand new show for the network, which was in a pilot stage. And they were sort of like, well, you know, whatever. Okay, whatever. Like it was so low level, the job that I wanted as quote unquote digital producer, kind of like what even is that? Because this is not in 2020. This is like at least maybe seven years ago, eight years ago, something like that. But I had seen their pilot and since I just graduated college, I was just like, oh my God, this needs to be on YouTube. Like we need to put some of these sketches out and serve them to younger people so that they see what this sketch show is all about. Um, Mm. And that was sort of how I went from the more menial, horrible tasks to being able to do something more creative and fun.
1: That's so cool. But then here we are. You're at this point where things are going great in your career. Yeah. And as we've discussed from the outside, everyone assumes, well, she's killing it. She must be so happy. She really has her life together. Yeah. She's becoming a producer. Yeah. But where did you, where did you stand? Because, you know, you write in the book that you were openly just crying on the subway yeah. often. So... What was going on?
0: On a good day. On a good, a good day. <laughs> on a good day. I was openly weeping on the subway. You know, I, so I basically hit rock bottom at 25 when I drunk dialed my therapist threatening to hurt myself. And, you know, the next morning when I listened to her voicemails and heard the worry in her voice, I got really worried for the first time because she was this placid European woman, constantly drinking tea, and now she's leaving me voicemails about how I need to go to a hospital and am I around people? That really shook me up. Um, And I Mm -hmm. realized, you know, this is also not a thing. I don't want to be known as the girl drunk dialing her therapist and threatening to hurt herself. I've got to take control of my life. No parents are coming. I don't have any wise mentors. All I have is me. There, there was a Feist quote at the time that I, that I had read that said, at the end of the day, you're all you have. It was like, oh, Feist, you genius. But I realized I was all I had, and I had to take responsibility for myself. And since I had always been a really good student, I just thought, what if I attacked this, like, a project? What if I made a curriculum of reparenting myself? I don't know what that looks like. But what if I? What would it look like if I were to be my own parent? W- what values would I teach myself? What principles? Um, what vegetables would I feed myself? Like genuinely, what vegetables are the good ones? Which one should I be eating? So I just started asking all these questions.
1: But where were you asking? And and I'm curious how you began to answer because these are big questions, right? You know, just learning how to eat vegetables and feed yourself differently could, could be a job that could be a singular focus for a month before you add a second task. So how did you begin to do this? Cause I I think when I think about ways in which I would like to perhaps reprogram elements of my own life, I'm like, how, how do you really begin?
0: Right. Well, it's such a good question. And I think it's a question that stops a lot of people dead in their tracks because mm-hmm. it seems too big and overwhelming. So I have very good news, which is you start right where you are. You, mm-hmm. you stop worrying about where you're going to get. So I didn't I couldn't even worry about what life was going to be like 5 years in the future because I was worried I wouldn't survive that day. So I just I put it aside. How's this all going to work out? Am I going to be able to do this? How, How am I going to do it? And just start right now. And how I started right now was by reading memoirs as self-care. I Mm. watched how other, um, my friends' parents treated them. Like I started going to a lot of other families, Sunday night dinners and taking notes. I paid attention that the biggest thing here is I paid attention to my life. I asked questions and then paid attention to the answers And sometimes it was as simple as, you know, when I was trying to decide what principles do I want and what is a principle, I just spent a day Googling it. I focused on the question and typed things like, what are principles and which one should I have? And as I went through the answers that I just read online, I journaled about it. I journaled about what's important to me which got me to wait, you know what would be cool is if i knew where my self-esteem came from. If i was able to name where my mm. self-esteem came from, so let me write down that. By by asking the questions, you just get moving and that's all that matters. I think it's just that you have to take off the table the end results. Like know that you'll get there, but it's mm. you know, it's so cliche but the process is usually the the thing that matters most. And in this case, it was true, too. So I wrote down the questions and I just started attacking them without worrying, how is this all going to work out?
1: Yeah, you can't focus so much on the outcome. You have to follow the curiosity.
0: Exactly, exactly. And be gentle with yourself.
1: And when you talk about the principles that you were Googling now, are there are there certain kind of tenants principles in your life that are your go-tos?
0: Yeah, I'm actually, um, I can look at my wall next to me, which has three places I derive my self-esteem, my principles, and then what I want people to say about me when I'm dead. And those are sort of the guiding light of being able to check back in with myself and um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the principles, I'm just looking at the wall. Um, my number one is enjoy life, that this is an adventure and not a crisis to endure. And mm. I, I have to come back to that basically every day, especially now, that even in a crisis, you get to choose who you are and how you're going to live through it. And if this is the only life we're going to be granted, then we better make sure we're enjoying just a sliver of it um, because otherwise I think it's a very ungracious way to thank the universe for putting you here. And I did just use the word universe earnestly, but that's my biggest is to really find how to enjoy my life. And then the second would be to give gratitude for that life to make sure that I'm, you know, letting people know how important they are to me, that I'm smiling and looking people in the eye and thanking them and that I act in a way that is full of gratitude because that gratitude really has changed my life. Um, instead of mm. thinking about what I don't have, how I'm not achieving, really counting and, and keeping an inventory of what I do have and, and how thankful I am for that. Those are two really important ones.
1: Is gratitude part of your journaling practice?
0: Yes. Um, so every morning, the first thing I do is I write three pages of free-flowing thoughts. I, I picked this up from Julia Cameron's The Artist Way, which is – mm. have, have you read The Artist Way?
1: So it's really interesting. A friend of mine gave it to me a couple of years ago, and every time that I've gone to start it, I've wound up booking a job and then not been able to. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I and I quite literally two days ago pulled it off my bookshelf and thought this should probably be my pandemic project. Wow, well, that's crazy so this kismet. Feels yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Thanks. Oh my god, I have the chills. <laughs>
0: Oh, my goodness. I, that okay. feels very faded. Okay. Okay, wow. Universe. My face
1: is hot. Wow. <laughs> All right. All right. I see you, Universe. I see you right now. That's a little sparkly, yeah. jumpy sign. Yeah. Okay. And I love that. Yeah, the artist's way. It changed is my life. Is that what taught you to journal? Yes, 100%. Wow. Because that's always a question I've had. I've always wanted to be a person who keeps a journal, but I don't get it. I'm like, what do you how to what do you do with that blank page? Like I, similarly to you, was such a good student and such an overachiever in school. And just I love school. I still miss school. All I want to do is go back to school. Like if I won the lottery, I would literally just go to school forever. <laughs> and I love a prompt. Yeah. And I I have this feeling, even as an adult, I have this feeling of panic when I see a blank page.
0: So interesting because first off, it makes total sense to me that you wanna that you would be um, a student forever. You're one of the most curious people I've ever encountered, and that's why I love your podcast so much. Is because I oh always gosh, you. know I'm gonna learn something new um, because you're following your own curiosity so authentically. But with journaling, you know, now I've been doing it for I think like nine years, um, not really skipping days. So on the other side of it, it's, it's so easy now. It's like second nature. At the beginning, I only tell you that so that at the beginning, I thought journaling was for broken narcissists, and I absolutely was not going to do it. <laughs> I thought you must be psychotic and way too into yourself to journal. Like your life is so important. Ew. And guess what? My life is important. It's important to me. Like it, Yes, of course. And I'd like to make a difference and I'd like to do good things. So it's okay to, to say I have a voice. I'd like to use it. And in this completely non-offensive way in my journal. And so Julia Cameron teaches, she has a practice called the morning pages. Mm-hmm. And I should add, I was also really apprehensive of journaling because I had journaled as a little kid. And in my parents' divorce, a family friend found my journal and entered it into my parents' divorce proceedings as evidence that I was a liar, that I would embellish things and that I shouldn't be trusted. No. Yeah, and when I, when I think about it, I, I get really angry and, like, my ears fold up like little sheets. Like, that's how – they're, like, hot when I, when I think about the anger I feel It's such
1: a violation.
0: Yeah, it it was awful and I was, I was 12 and being told, you know, your word is not valuable and in fact is a problem, you know, and and you're not to be trusted. And so I had really resisted journaling, but again, on a good day, I was openly weeping on the subway. So I just thought, whatever, I have nothing left to lose. Let me try these morning pages. And what the morning pages are, are three pages of just word vomit, what are you thinking thoughts. And as you begin, it's okay if what you write is, I hate the morning pages. This really sucks. I have nothing to say. I, there was a prompt. Why won't someone give me a prompt? Because what you're doing is, I call it DMing with your soul. Like you're getting in touch with that part of you that's got semi-sneaky, secret, lurid messages. Like you're touching it and saying like, I'm here, I'm listening. So, Mm. so the content really doesn't matter. Like it doesn't even, it doesn't need to look nice. It doesn't need to be an accounting of the cool sushi you ate last night. Nobody's asking anyone to write a novel. It's just, can you start to get in touch with your self-awareness? Can you start to get in touch with the things that, that you care about and want to think about? And in the book, I provide some prompts to, to help getting started, but they're all really simple. Like, here's exactly how I feel today. Something as simple as that can really jumpstart you on journaling. But it's, it has changed my life. I mean, it, if any practice mm. from the book has worked, journaling gave me perspective, gave me a little mm. distance from my thoughts and emotions. So that I can see them and see and see them physically on a page,
1: and then you can see what the egoic part of the brain—that insidious, nasty voice—you call it your frenemy—which yeah. I love—you see the way that that part of your brain talks to you, and and you you begin to get a little context to undo the lies it tells you.
0: Yes. And to see that your frenemy within is not you. Your Mm -hmm. frenemy in the book I write, you know, it's like the girl that you met at summer camp and your other friends are like, why are you inviting her to our our dinner parties? She sucks. She's like draining all of the energy. And and you're like, well, we have a history and I've known her a long time. And if we met today, we wouldn't be friends. But here we are. Um, Because I think most people can relate to having someone like that in their lives.
1: I finally stopped being friends with those people.
0: And <laughs> and it was awesome, right? And nothing bad uh, happens?
1: No, nothing bad happens. That's
0: another thing right. I write about. You can stop hanging out with people you don't like and nothing yeah. bad will happen.
1: Yeah, like just because you were friends with someone from your childhood, if they're not a nice person in their adulthood, you don't have to be there friend. Yeah,
0: or if you wow. met, met them in college and they were your roommate and they're supposed to be your best friend forever, but they're driving you insane and never ask you a single question about yourself. Yeah, you do not need to hang out with people you do not want to hang out with. Um, yeah. And especially not frenemies within who reside in your own mind because you've got some control there. So the, just as you were saying, the journaling, it really gets you in touch with how vicious you can be to yourself. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't know the extent of how mean I was and that the soundtrack of my life was a diss track. I was just Mm -hmm. constantly diss tracking myself, just Mm -hmm. constant criticism. And so the journaling really showed me, wait, you think you're too old to find love? And this was not like 25. I'm writing, I'm too old to find love. I'm too old to have a fulfilling career. If I haven't done it yet, I never will. Like, it was pathetic <laughs> that, I, that I thought that and, and too old for what? I mean, really at any age, it's like, wait, why? Who said that? Oh, I did. Okay, so that's a lie. I can change
1: that. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that when you tell a lie about yourself, you project it as true?
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. And I think a lot of what journaling is, is about is discerning between beliefs and truth that you can mm. believe you're too old to do something, but the truth is completely different and that these self-limiting beliefs, we have the power to change, but we can't change them if we don't know them. And the best way to know mm-hmm. them, I find, is to journal. I know journaling is mm-hmm. disgusting and horrible and nobody wants to do it, but on the other side of it, as somebody who really was not a believer, I can say it's, it's a habit it's a practice and once you're in it it's awesome and really healthy you just have to give yourself the the space to do it
1: yeah well and i love there's something that you talk about that journaling physicalizes the thought yeah it makes your mind and your hand connect to each other and and that led you into one of my favorite quotes of yours as you said there's a real difference between truth and a belief And I think the the thing that can discern is that mind-hand connection.
0: Yes. I think that's the key to journaling is that it's physical. And everything I write about in the book is physical, Mm -hmm. even the emotional things. Because I think if you're lost in your head and overwhelmed by your thoughts – It's hard to get anything done. Like we were talking about even how do I start to reprogram myself? How do I start to reparent myself? If you're in your head about how complicated that is, you can't even begin. So all the things I write about are small rituals that you can do in the real world, physical things that you can see because I find that that gives us so much more power and momentum to keep moving because we, we see the progress. You know, I can look at my bookshelf and I'm looking at 30 notebooks. Like I see that I have been working on understanding myself better, being a more compassionate person in this world. I, I know I have. I can just look at these notebooks. That's, that's what I've been doing.
1: So you write in notebooks, not in a Google doc or something.
0: So I have, I've got two things. So I've got the Google doc, which is what the book is based off of, which ended up Mm -hmm. being 600 pages of let me reparent myself. And so I've I've got that. And then I've got the journals, which were every morning, the three pages. Mm -hmm.
1: So what was the difference? What, what were you, you were journaling your three pages. Why, why did you even start the Google doc in the first place?
0: The, the pages are really just, they're not meant to tell a story or mm-hmm. be productive. There's no, there's nothing productive that I'm doing in my journal. Like there's no goal. There's a lot that is productive about it, but that's not the aim. The aim is just get in touch. The mm-hmm. Google doc had a really serious, urgent goal in mind, which was how do I take responsibility for my life in a joyful way? Because at first, I thought taking responsibility for my life was going to be so sucky. It was going to be just like literally the worst experience. Why would I take responsibility? I even thought if I take responsibility, then I can't blame my parents anymore. That sounds like a bad idea. Like I had that conscious thought that I, I couldn't blame anybody anymore. And on the other side, I'm like, oh yeah, and now I'm free of blame, which is awesome. Like I feel (laughs) feel so much better. Like it turns out it's much worse to not take responsibility for your life than to take responsibility. So the Google Doc really, it was more like, here are the steps. Here's how I'm going to take care of this. Here's how to cook Swiss chard. This is a, Here's um, a passage from Nora Ephron about how she feels about her body. How do I feel about my body? How can I change it? Here's a Google Mm -hmm. result for how to change what you think about your
1: body. (laughs) It was much more goal-oriented. Yeah. And do you think that that's where you were able to start the reckoning? Because I think about, you know, even when I've read interviews where you've talked about how you just want to blast through that super annoying phrase or mythology of like follow your bliss. Yeah. And it's like you you had to you had to walk into uncharted territory into your pain. Yes. to to get to bliss on the other side. And 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 do you think yeah, I'm just going to stop there and
0: yeah. <laughs> I I love that you brought that up because one of my top hated phrases is follow your bliss.
1: Because I'm like,
0: oh, really? Where does one find that bliss? Like, did mm. was everyone else just given what they were supposed to love? And I'm just here, like, saying, like, well, I'm not exactly sure. Also, I'm just trying to survive over here. So thanks for this overwhelming burden of bliss. Mm. Um, so I hated that phrase so much. And that was what people were saying when I graduated college. That was, like, a big college graduation theme. Follow your passion. Follow your bliss. Like, cool. I have a bunch of student loans to pay off. So, thank you. Um, yeah, you're like, also,
1: what if my passion
0: is for expensive
1: wine? Because yeah. I need to not be an alcoholic or be drunk all the time. Ex-
0: like, shall I follow that? <laughs> like,
1: yeah. How am I supposed to afford this? Yeah,
0: exactly. So, my whole thing is just take the next step. If something mm. is interesting and you ha- are interested in it, just what is the next step towards that interest? And mm. I don't know where I'm ultimately going to end up like my ultimate job. I have no idea. All I know is that I keep following what I'm interested in, what I'm curious about, and I take responsibility for my mental health. These are the things that I can do. And it's maybe it's not as sexy as follow your bliss, follow your passion, but it's freeing because I'm not so worried about did I achieve the big goal? Like, I don't know. I'm doing the very best I can and I'm very happy. So that feels pretty good to me. You know? um, mm-hmm. And I, and back to what you were saying at the very beginning, I think if you think about this as a huge project, that it's going to upend your life and it's going to be so overwhelming, it's really hard to start. So that's, Mm -hmm. again, a reason why I don't think about follow your bliss. I I think about follow the next step, follow what excites Mm -hmm. me. Sometimes follow, you know, what am I envious of of, in other people? Like when I see somebody like has a project and I feel a little like, ooh, envy, like, ooh, envy. Why do I feel that? What are you trying to say to me? Okay. You want to be doing something like that? Okay. Let's, let's write through this. Let's figure out what you want to do. I'm, I'm paying attention as opposed to just barreling through my life, either feeling ashamed of my thoughts or ignoring them.
1: I really love that. And getting over the shame in your fear or in your desire is such a big deal. Yeah. And I think especially for women, you know, it's tied, there's shame tied to ambition, there's shame tied to intimate desire, there's shame tied to independence. I mean, so, so much. And to get out from underneath that yeah, feel like a Herculean task at times.
0: Oh, and it is. I mean, I love what you're saying right there. I mean, to be a woman is to be told to be ashamed of yourself. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Like Adam and Eve, (laughs) like our, our first origin story is you know, this shameful tale of a woman tempting a man, and then we damned everybody through this yeah. story. That And that's our foundational text of what it is to be a woman. And, you know, I've started thinking of that story as Eve was kind of cool. Like, Eve was like, oh, knowledge? Like, I'd like to, I want to know more. And actually, is it so bad that then they were in touch with what was real, that they were Mm -hmm. in this complete fantasy. And then by having a little knowledge, they actually were able to get in touch with this is the reality of the world. And let's learn about it, you know, so I think, for women, we're so tied to shame. And, but there are really, there's some low hanging fruit um, of how to get over shame, you know, and for me, it's, writing, like writing out how I feel so that I'm comfortable. and Nobody else has to see it. But if it's in a beautiful peony decorated golden spined journal, it's a lot easier to deal with those feelings yeah. and those thoughts and and to practice.
1: And you talk about, I mean, the title of the book, Buy the Fucking Lilies. Yeah. You're worth... Buying yourself seven dollar flowers. You can put something in your room that makes it it look beautiful. You can quite literally give yourself gifts because yes. you are worthy. Yes, and you are you are teaching your body and your and your brain that you appreciate your own worthiness. Yes, and but but how? My first reflex
0: to that, even where I am, is you. No, nobody. We're not worth it. And then I have to be like wait a minute. We absolutely are. You know, I had where the title of the book comes from is on this reparenting journey. I would go to Trader Joe's. Mm -hmm. I would see the $7 lilies. And I would think those are just too good for me. I'm not worth them. They're going to die. They're it's stupid. I'm stupid. What a stupid Mm -hmm. indulgence until one day I got sick of that. And I was like, fuck this. I am worth." lilies I'm at least worth seven dollars otherwise why am I working so hard well, why am I here at all if I'm not worth a bouquet of flowers that literally can change my entire day that the, mm-hmm. the they're so beautiful and they bring me such joy and and so I think you know self-care you could think of self-care as a vacation to Tulum and I've got nothing mm-hmm. against Tulum Tulum is lovely but that's not self-care You could think of self-care as buying yourself a beautiful face mask. I got nothing against face masks, but that is, it's like self-soothe and really nice, but it's not self-care. Self-care is luxuriating in the mundane details of our lives, taking care of ourselves like we would Mm -hmm. a little kid, you know, and that, and that those, those little habits we build for ourselves, those rituals we build for ourselves are so much more enjoyable than any vacation. They, and they last a lifetime. The lilies, yeah. you know, even in this pandemic, I am still buying myself flowers at Trader Joe's when I go for my rations. Part of my rations are flowers. And if they mm-hmm. stop selling flowers, it's going to be baths. And if I can't take a bath, it's going to be clean socks. There's always some small thing that you can do to as you were saying before, unite your minds and your body Mm -hmm. into showing yourself that you're worth it.
1: Yeah. God. I love that you say that about how you would parent a child. I, one of the most kind of profound realizations that I've had in my life was uh, I was working a job years ago. That was a really toxic working environment. And I was making every excuse for how I could handle it, how I could fix it, how I could solve for it, how I needed to take care of my crew. And, you know, yeah, it sucked for me, but there were 200 people's jobs there. And, you know, what? I had all these excuses for why I was taking it. And while I was doing that job, one of my closest friends had a baby. And I remember standing there and holding her, eight day old son in my arms. And we were laughing because obviously, you know, my voice is like, I, I register at the level of dubstep, like it's a whole <laughs> other thing. And when she was pregnant and I would talk into her belly, he would always start moving around a lot. Oh wow. And the first time that I spoke to him, he looked at me in this way like, oh, and she went, he knows it's you. Like, he knows your voice. And it Whoa. Was cra- it was crazy. It was just this crazy experience. And, you know, she is one of the people I love the most on the planet. And so obviously that transfers and I love him the most. And I would, like, pick up a car, you know, right for him if I needed to. And I was talking about just what a surreal thing it was what a perspective shift it was to be looking at this new little person and, and to realize that I would do anything to protect him and that I wasn't protecting myself. Right. And, and my therapist said to me, she was like, this is really important. She said, you know, would you ever allow someone to deny that baby sleep? And I said, no. And she said, would you ever allow someone to feed him Food that would make him sick. I said, No. Would you allow someone to harm him physically or emotionally? No, no. And we went through the whole list and she said, So why are you more capable of taking care of a baby that has its own parent? Why do you why do you give him the care he deserves, but not give yourself the care you deserve? It's I mean, I'm nodding,
0: nodding, nodding. Yeah, it's a mind-blown kind of moment. I, I Yeah. I realized you know, if a, if a little girl, you know, scraped her knee or was scared or, you know, ashamed or had fears, would you yell at the little girl? Would you say, Mm-mm. you need to keep working, do better, don't feel this, you know, especially in a time in a crisis. If, mm-hmm. if you know, people are feeling overwhelming anxiety or, or just fear, just fear that they don't know what to do with. If a little girl little toddler comes up to you and pulls on on your pant leg and says I'm scared do you say you shouldn't be scared other people have it worse than you (laughs) or do you say oh I hear you I'm so sorry that you're feeling that way let's talk about it you're okay right in this moment you're safe let's do something nice you know and my whole mission of this book is to think of ourselves in those terms as people Mm -hmm. to be taken care of and not told to shut up and stop feeling your feelings. Because we are taught that as we're talking about shame, as little girls, we're taught pretty quickly, you're wrong, your body's wrong, don't speak too much, but speak, but not like that. Wait a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, we're like put in box, 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 until we're so repressed and small and told to stay small, that we start to believe that we are in fact small and that we don't have these feelings, we don't have these emotions, and we should feel ashamed. And what I'd like to do is free that little girl up and start taking care of her, even if she's Mm. 34, which is exactly where I find myself, you know, which is it's not too late to heal my thoughts. I'm worth taking care of. And I'm the best person to do that work because I know myself the best, you know, and, mm. and it's not sad. A lot of people, you know, they'll say, I'm so sorry you had the childhood you had. I'm so sorry you had those parents. I'm like, cool, because I'm not <laughs> like, like that. Okay, okay, that's fine. I mean, I understand you're trying to um, empathize with me, but I'm grateful you know, had I not gone through what I went through, I could just be blindly going through my life, letting it pass me by. But because of these experiences, I really had to take notice and decide what kind of person I wanted to be. And that has been an incredibly amazing gift that has let me be vulnerable with other people That, that, that I get to meet you because I because of that because that all happened i get to cross your path i get to cross paths of people who i would have otherwise never met so mm. you know there's there's always two ways to look at something you know and and i choose to reframe things to see what i am grateful about you know it, it doesn't take away the trauma it doesn't take away the sorrow do i wish i had a relationship with my mom of course i do but I also found maternal love for myself that I have cultivated and learned how to give, that wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. have become close with all the moms of my friends. I wouldn't have all of their love. I wouldn't have all of their support. So, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, we, we get to choose the story we're telling ourselves. And Nora Ephron has an amazing quote at the Wellesley College Commencement of 1990, 1996, she said, above all else, be the heroine of your life. Mm. And I, you know, I've got that taped to my wall about six times. You know, like, that, that's our choice. It's, it is a choice, no matter how bad the circumstance. And there are some really bad circumstances. So this is not to be Pollyanna about, oh, rose-colored glasses. It's just your perspective. It's the one life you get. So if you're going to yeah. cast yourself as the victim, you are going to be the victim. And that's a role you, that is available. It's definitely not one that I want to play.
1: Yeah. And it's such a good reminder that we actually can rest the control back. Yeah. Yeah. Choose the path of our own destiny.
0: Yeah, and it's not to say that that's easy. You know, it takes—oh, use the word Herculean. You know, it takes a fuck ton of effort and work and practice and fucking it up, and then saying, "Okay, that's okay. I'm gonna get back up and I'm gonna try again." But the Mm. the process, the effort is worth it. You Mm. know, it's it's it is absolutely worth it.
1: I love that. I really do. Thank you. Wow. Well, my favorite question to ask everyone, because the answers always vary, and I'm always so fascinated, and I'm really excited to hear yours. Um, Obviously, the podcast is called Work in Progress. Yeah. And I'm really curious at this moment, what feels like a work in progress in your life, whether it's personal or professional or perhaps pandemic oriented. (laughs) Right. Oh, that
0: I had forgotten we were in one. You had, (laughs) you had put me in a bubble of everything's okay. The, I think the thing that I'm in the most progress about, you know, the, the book is all about the story of how I built stability and structure, how I kind of ground, Mm -hmm. grounded myself. Mm -hmm. But what I'm, and, and I, so I thought in writing the book you know, oh, it's going to change my life because I'm going to meet cool people and it's going to be so fun. That's, that's how I thought it was going to change my life. And I thought it's going to be the end of my childhood. I'll have touched everything. And, you know, that was probably a pretty naive thought, but now I realize it was just the beginning that it, it was the beginning of a different path, not the end of, of an old one. And that I have a lot of fear around what I could do, who I could love, what my life could look like. And I'm so tied to my routines because they bring me such joy and stability. But can I get a little comfortable with feeling uncomfortable? And I think that's sort of the next um, chapter, you know, is sort of confronting some of my fears, confronting some more of my limiting beliefs that the more work I do, the more I kind of am aware of these things. And so I think particularly in love and in all relationships, I think for me, the next thing to work on is confronting some of my fears. Mm. That, feels,
1: that feels to me like a, like a cyclical. Adventure.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, I feel like we repeat that over and over because you confront something, you move through it, you learn, you achieve, you get your perspective and then the next one comes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, and I think yeah. that,
1: that's been a big lesson for me is like, there was a while where I thought, oh, well, if I do the work, then I'll be done. Right. And then <laughs> one day I had to look around and I was like, oh, oh, I have to, oh, I'm going to have to do the work forever. Yes. Okay. Oh, wow. okay. cool. 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 Great. Cool.
0: Cool. cool. Great. <laughs> great. Yeah, it's funny, you know, in therapy. Um, which I'm a huge proponent of therapy. You know, I always, I sometimes get frustrated at my therapist. I'm like, but I already did this work. I, but I already know, I already did this. And one thing she says is, it's sort of like boxes that you, you you're moving and you put it away. Uh, you you know you've organized it perfectly everything's ready you've put it away and then there's going to be another moment in your life where you have to pull it off the shelf open it back up again and look at it but from a different perspective and not to get frustrated that that this is again mm-hmm. part of the process and that it's a gift that that we get to lead richer lives when we're paying attention we mm-hmm. get we get to enjoy the process of getting to know ourselves and having our minds change and our perspectives change if we're open to really experiencing how we're feeling and, and what we're going through. So I completely agree. It's cyclical. And I never, you know, now that I'm like a quote unquote self care expert, which makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit, you know, like I'm like, that's not, that's not even close to, you know, what I started out setting out to do. I just wanted to save my life. I wasn't looking to write a book. But what I can say is that what makes me an expert is only my curiosity and willingness to feel things. It's not that I finished anything and that I'm a perfect person and hey, look how good I look on Instagram. That's not what it's about. It's about being willing to ask questions, being willing to seek answers, being willing to screw up and still love myself.
1: Mm.
0: That's where you can become a kind of self-care expert. In my book, I call it a ninja of self-love. You know, you're, you're willing to do the training, do the work, don your dope ninja outfit and show up to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's completely cyclical. And, and I think that's the sort of, I'm just going, I'm like seeing, oh, there's a lot more work to be done and a lot a lot of people who are really resonating with the book. And maybe, maybe this is part of my mission in my life is to make people feel less lonely in this experience. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so
1: much so for having great. me. This was yeah. awesome. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Carillion Anatomy.